You're listening to Purpose Inspired, a podcast series by myself, Wayne Visser. This season is based on a book called The Age of Responsibility, CSR 2.0 and the New DNA of Business. An unhealthy appetite. If only, indeed. I began this chapter with Larry MacDonald's true story, because I think it tells us something about the age of greed. This was an age that began with the first financial derivatives when they were traded on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange in 1972 and peaked, we hope, with Lehman's collapse in 2008. It was a time when greed is good and bigger is better were the dual mottos that seemed to underpin the American dream. The invisible hand of the market went largely unquestioned. Incentives, like Wall Street profits and traders' bonuses, were perverse, leading not only to unbelievable wealth in the hands of a few speculators, but ultimately to global financial catastrophe. McDonald's story, I believe, gets to the heart of the nature of greed. The word greed, from the Old English, has etymological roots that relate to hunger and eagerness. This is similar to the older word, avarice, coming from Old French and Latin, meaning to crave or long for. These are characteristics that MacDonald had in spades. The Greek word for greed literally means money-loving. Also, that has a familiar ring in MacDonald's story. The trouble is that capitalism in general, and the American dream in particular, has tended to interpret this as a healthy trait, MacDonald didn't believe he was doing anything wrong or being unethical. He was playing the game extremely well until it all collapsed like a house of cards and being rewarded handsomely for his aptitude, no questions asked. No doubt MacDonald would have been unfamiliar or at least uncomfortable with the German root for the word greed, which means to have a sickness or disease. And yet I believe this comes closer to the real essence of greed, for it acts like a cancer in society, like a cell in the body which becomes so selfish that it ultimately destroys its host. As with cancer, however, the enabling environment is as important as the greedy cell itself. As implied by the title of my book, Beyond Reasonable Greed, a certain measure of selfishness is natural, but it needs to be moderated by norms, rules and cultural taboos that keep its destructive tendencies in check. It is worth reminding ourselves what the consequences of those destructive tendencies can mean in the lives of millions of ordinary people. The financial cost of cleaning up after the global financial crisis, which ultimately gets translated into a tax burden on the public, was estimated by the International Monetary Fund in August 2009 at £7.1 trillion or $11 trillion, enough to finance a £1,779 or $2,748 handout for every man, woman and child on the planet. This gargantuan sum includes capital injections pumped into banks in order to prevent them from collapsing, the cost of soaking up so-called toxic assets, guarantees over debt and liquidity support from central banks. And then there is the human cost of unemployment. In January 2010, 
the International Labour Organization, released figures showing that the global unemployment rate for 2009 was 6.6%, or 212 million people, an increase of almost 34 million over 2007. In the US alone, over 100,000 businesses filed for bankruptcy in 2008 and 2009. At the same time, the World Bank estimated that the financial crisis left an additional 50 million people around the world in extreme poverty in 2009, and some 64 million in 2010, relative to a no-crisis scenario, principally in sub-Saharan Africa and eastern and southeastern Asia. We should all be outraged by the dire human and economic fallout from banking greed, and indeed many are. But it is important to remember that the age of greed was not something out there. It was not the preserve of a few rogue traders, or even thoughtful and somewhat concerned traders like MacDonald. We were all caught up in its web. Our global financial implosion was, and is, a multi-level phenomenon, incorporating executive greed, banking greed, financial market greed, corporate greed, and ultimately, greed embedded in the capitalist system. Executive greed. The most convenient explanation for the financial crisis is to point a finger at the greed and irresponsibility of a few individual executives, like Lehman Brothers, Richard or Dick Fuld. It is an argument with significant weight and popular appeal, as we always want a scapegoat to assuage our pain. We saw it all before with Enron. In 2000, Enron was the seventh largest company in America, with revenues of $111 billion and over 20,000 staff. When the company collapsed in 2001, due to various fraudulent accounting activities, the average severance payment was $45,000, while executives received bonuses of $55 million in the company's last year. Employees lost $1.2 billion in pensions and retirees lost $2 billion. But executives cashed in $116 million in stocks. The dissolution of the accounting firm Anderson also resulted in the loss of 85,000 jobs. It is no surprise that Enron's executives took the fall and that not a single public tear was shed as a result. Jeffrey Skilling, the former CEO, pleaded not guilty but was found culpable on 19 counts of fraud, conspiracy, insider trading and lying to auditors. He was sentenced to more than 24 years in prison and a fine of $45 million. Kenneth Lay, Enron's former chairman, was found guilty on 10 counts but died of heart failure before sentence was passed. And Andrew Fastow, the former chief financial officer, was sentenced to six years in prison for his part in the cover-up. So we had our scapegoats. They got what they deserved. And as far as Wall Street was concerned, they could go back to business greed as usual. By the end of 2007, a similar pattern was already emerging, in large part due to the greed-hyped activities of Lehman Brothers and other financial institutions. With the financial crisis writing already writ large on the wall, including on Wall Street, Fold and Lehman's president, Joseph Gregory, paid themselves stock bonuses of $35 million and $29 million, respectively. Fold continued to live in his enormous Greenwich mansion 
of over 9,000 square feet valued at $10 million, and he certainly had no intention of giving up his four other homes and his art collection valued at $200 million. Taken on their own, these examples of executive excess are outrageous enough, but the extent of creeping executive greed comes into even sharper focus when we look at trends in relative pay. In 1965, American CEOs in major companies earned 24 times more than a typical worker, but that ratio steadily grew to 35 in 1978 and 71 in 1989. By the year 2000, it had hit 298 times, and despite falling to 143 in 2002, after the post-Enron stock market slump, it bounced back again and continued rising through the 2000s. According to Fair Economy, in 2007, despite the looming economic recession, CEO pay of the largest 500 companies in America, the S&P 500, averaged $10.5 million, 344 times the pay of a typical American worker, and 866 times as much as the minimum wage of employees. The same year, the top 50 hedge and private equity fund managers earned an average of $588 million, according to Alpha magazine, more than 19,000 times as much as average worker pay. And in 2008, while the financial crisis was beginning to bite for ordinary citizens, average CEO pay went up to $10.9 million, while CEO perks averaged at $365,000, nearly 10 times the median salary of a full-time worker. It is easy to go cross-eyed or brain-fried when confronted by a barrage of numbers like that, But there's one particular number that shocked me so much the first time I read it in 1997 that I've never forgotten it. I believe I read it in Anita Roddick's book, Body and Soul, where she claimed that it would take one Haitian worker producing Disney clothes and dolls 166 years to earn as much as Disney's then president, Michael Eisner, earned in one day. As I later wrote... Rather than spreading around wealth for the common good, it seems to me that Adam Smith's invisible hand has a compulsive habit of feeding itself. Banking greed. Horrific as these trends in executive greed are, and they certainly represent a responsibility train wreck, I do not believe that the global financial crisis can be adequately explained by so-called bad apples, as the media like to characterize these now disgraced captains of industry. In addition to those leaders who were driven by personal greed, the subprime loans crisis was also a story of institutional greed, sparked and fueled by deregulation of the financial sector since the 1980s. In particular, we can point to a number of poor U.S. policy decisions that were to have disastrous consequences. The first was President Bill Clinton's campaign promise to increase home ownership in poor and minority communities, a noble cause to be sure, but one which put pressure on the banks to make riskier loans, two million of them between 1993 and 1999. The folly of this policy, while obvious in retrospect, did not pose any immediate concerns, as the housing market was strong and prices continued to rise. 
Over the same period, Clinton was coming under increasing pressure by the banking lobby to repeal the Glass-Steagall Act of 1933, a piece of post-Wall Street crash legislation that prevented commercial banks from merging with investment banks. The law was specifically put in place to prevent another global financial crisis and ensuing depression. At first, Clinton resisted, but the banks were relentless. In 1998, one of the banks, Citicorp, decided to flout the law, announcing a $70 billion merger with Travelers Insurance. Clinton tried to block it but failed in the Senate, despite the fact that the merger was technically illegal. A year later, Clinton bowed to rising pressure and repealed the Glass-Steagall Act. This single action proved to be the butterfly effect that would bring the world financial system to its knees. With the stroke of a pen and bullied by the greed of the banks, Clinton had given permission for speculative financial traders to start gambling with the hard-earned deposits of ordinary Americans and others. Soon, all manner of financial instruments exploded onto the markets. From collateralized debt obligations and collateralized loan obligations to commercial mortgage-backed securities and credit default swaps. For a year or two, it seemed like the party may have ended before it had begun, as Wall Street contemplated the bankruptcy of Enron and others, which had issued convertible bonds. The 9-11 tragedy and dot-com crash was happening around the same time, and some measure of caution did return to the markets, but not for long. Alan Greenspan's slashing of interest rates to 1% was, like Clinton's repeal of Glass-Steagall, a butterfly effect that would cause a financial typhoon. Suddenly, not only was the housing market growing, but money was almost free. And with the help of all those newly invented financial voodoo instruments, the subprime party really got going. It all seems surreal in retrospect, looking back as we now do from our economic hospital beds in 2010. How was it that preposterous loans like the Ninja Mortgage, the so-called no income, no jobs and no assets that were required to qualify, how was that ever allowed to exist? It didn't matter that you were poor or had no collateral. Not only would you get a mortgage, the broker would pay you 10% more than you needed to buy the house. The initial interest rate, what the brokers called the teaser rate, would be next to nothing, then increase five or tenfold in the years to come. The infallible logic behind this, if that isn't an oxymoron, was that housing market prices would continue to rise steadily and everyone would be a winner. If you couldn't pay your monthly instalments, no problem. Just sell the house, pay off the mortgage, and you would still have some money left over in your pocket. The result was that, according to the Mortgage Bankers Association, the number of subprime loans offered to borrowers with below-average credit ratings increased nearly 15 times between 1998 and 2007, from round about 421,000 to 6.2 million. Meanwhile, the banks were in a feeding frenzy, leveraging themselves to the hilt so that they could make obscene profits from the market boom. To give you some idea, a leverage of 10 times, where a company has debts of 10 times its actual value, was considered very high. But by the time Lehman Brothers hit the iceberg, it was well on its way to being leveraged to 44 times its value, owing more than $700 billion dollars.
the face of banking greed was finally unmasked.